Hi, I'm Francis Hellier, and welcome to my brand new podcast, Metaverse. This is a podcast for the future-minded, a series for anyone on the hunt for the next big thing and all its possibilities and implications. This is Tomorrow's World Today. With each episode, I will chat to those at the top of their fields, from futurists in crypto and space travel to forecasters in business and tech. Together, we will ask the question, what's next? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Zalman, futurist, professor, and chief executive of Prescient. Founded in 2017, the Foresight Consultancy offers services to public, private, and nonprofit organizations to help accelerate change through strategic retreats and executive education. Before this, Amy founded the Boutique Consultancy Oryx Communications in 2005, which provided communications products to organizations expanding in the Middle East and North Africa. A part-time professor of strategic foresight in Georgetown University, she has also held positions including the first chair of information integration in the United States National War College and chief executive and president with the World Futures Society. A renowned global futurist, she was named one of top seven futurists in the world by Huffington Post and has published over 50 articles, book chapters, essays and monographs. So Amy, it's great to have you on the show. I want to start by reflecting on your work with the World Future Society and how you helped turn it around in, in under two years. The World Future Society is an amazing organization. It was the first, the largest organization dedicated to helping this new, this new profession, futurists, to evolve in the United States in the 1960s when it was founded. And when it was founded, it, it became almost a movement. It was at its height in the 1980s, a very large organization with, um, for those who remember them, who are, who are uh, at the end of their careers now, almost raucous, uh, large meetings. Also, it's notable that at its height, we were a world with information deficits as opposed to information overflows. So the only way for people to learn what might be happening and to learn of the research of others was really to meet. And so the organization served this function as a clearinghouse. Like many organizations, uh, two things happened to it over time. When I reached it, it was 50 years old and it had been led only by its founder and by one other president. One was that like the proverbial uh, doctor whose kids don't get checkups, it, it hadn't been such a good futurist for itself. That's typical. It was more like a typical nonprofit organization and a membership organization that suffered what institutions that are successful suffer if they last for a long time. So this is instructive for any company or government institution that has a successful legacy. It had simply failed to note because of its success that the ground was changing under its feet and the specific ways in which the world around the, that society were changing had to do with the fact that people did not join organizations by 2010, the way they once had membership organizations were decreasing um, in, their, in their viability. Uh, the fact that it was no longer so difficult for people to get information. The internet was you know, fully evolved by 2013, 2014 when I arrived on the scene. So you didn't have to meet in person and, and be a clearinghouse for magazines. And there were a couple other issues like that. The turnaround was basically the typical actions of anybody who needs to do a version of gut renovation on an organization. And they certainly wouldn't belabor um, the details here. 
but I will say that I worked very hard um, and so did the people who worked with me to ensure that its reputation uh, was not only intact, but you know, we showed that we were there again, um, met with a lot of people um, and had a very successful conference in San Francisco in 2015 that really showed that the organization was back. There's a little bit more to say about its trajectory, but let me let me stop there because maybe that's enough. <laughs> you um you view futurism on a global level. So how does that worldwide perspective influence your your thinking? Yeah, futurism on a global level. Futurism today, in my view, is more global than it ever has been. There is more opportunity for us to see each other and to think with each other in the same way that we're all having if experiencing the pandemic differently, we're all having the same pandemic, we're all having the same futurism, although we are experiencing what that e emerging future might look like very differently. Um, and as inequity rises, that is maybe a, a salient point. Maybe that's where we should stop. The, the foresight developed really differently in different countries, but it has arrived at a point where African and American, Mexican and uh, you know Norwegian futurists can and do and do meet. They did in the 70s and the 80s. Um, but I think there is a global sensibility today in general that that alters the way that people look at the future. That is emphatically amplified by what can only be called now perhaps a climate crisis um, by the recognition, that we are living in a, in a planetary unity as opposed to only in different countries with different legal and, and government structures and so forth. Now, a lot of your insights look at the complexity of information. In an era of fake news and all the other things that go along with it, how severe is that threat to our future? We need to reframe the way that we look at fake news. We need to reframe the way that we look at information. Let me restate that. This is not a tactical answer. I think it's very problematic, right? That people are not, are getting just sort of bad information. But it has always been the case, and bear with me, that a fact is a very small thing. There's not much to a fact. We can both agree that there's a man lying dead in the street, and that's about it. From then on, everything is interpretation. How did he get there? Why is he there? What led to his lying there, right? That's the journalist craft. Was he a freedom fighter when he fell? Was he a terrorist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We are all about storytelling. We're all about subjectivity. And so while it is the case, don't mis misunderstand that I'm saying there are no, right? That there are facts in the world. Those facts, when they come to have social life are mobilized always by stories. So it's really important to start with education, to start with understanding what is the public culture that, and, the, and the smaller culture that surrounds anybody who's just trying to make sense of a world that mostly none of us touch. Mostly we're surrounded by information about things that we don't experience. We're just living in information, if that makes sense. I don't touch the federal government. I don't touch the climate crisis unless something happens to me. I don't touch a disease unless it, I get sick with it. So I'm just living in this kind of sea of information. And the question is, what are the roots by its, by its, of its arrival? Who's telling it to me? Where am I listening? And so forth. But to just sort of hammer on that some things are facts and some things are not, is I think not, not a useful route. It is, it is better to understand ourselves as 
as, a, as this network, this dynamic network floating around in stories and passing them impartially and receiving little snippets. Okay, so in your opinion, what does the future hold for governance and distributions of power? That's my favorite topic. I think we should be on a course, we should be on a course toward collaborative power um, between governments and corporations. Right now, uh, of course, there is a big discussion. There are multiple discussions, and most of them have to do with the recognition and the shock shock that uh, corporations have been gaining power for some years and, and some very substantial power. If you go back historically and you really want to look at the history of corporations and governments, it is not hard to trace one lineage where they're not that different at all. All organizations are corporate. The Catholic Church, right? The Ottoman Empire, the, the, and so on and so forth. Empires may be a little different, but right, they're all corporations. And at some point in the post-industrial era, you know, for reasons that do have to do with corporations pushing hard in countries like the United States to gain private rights, um, we, we decided to split the public sector from the private sector and to let the flow of the distribution of resources and wealth kind of flow through those in particular ways. We've now arrived at a point where in many instances, in many instances, you can barely tell what's public and what's private. They're very intertwined. They're very intertwined. And you need both in order to get things done. Not, and those are then striated by layers of different kinds and levels of government, whether they're local or regional or, or federal or national, central, and by all kinds of groups and sort of uh, versions of havoc that people and groups can play by themselves. So where should we be going given the situation? It shouldn't be toward nationalizing everything because then you're left with governments that have basically to contract out even more because they don't have expertise anymore. We should be pushing for benefit corporations on a global scale. Um, I really uh, like the fact that Danone North America and maybe a couple of other firms have decided have made commitments to becoming benefit corporations um, on, the, on a global scale, on the largest possible scale. Um, I liked the platform in Elizabeth Warren's uh, campaign for presidency that um, corporations that make more than, you know, a very substantial amount of money, we're talking about Google and Amazon here and, and Exxon, should be public benefit corporations. What, what we should understand though is that draws them ever closer to government it doesn't actually pull them into, it doesn't regulate them more, it makes them more engaged in the process of government and government more engaged in the process of business. So what we should be looking for in my view is the end of the public and private sector. We should be, we don't, I don't know what it looks like. Obviously I'm not really talking at a detailed level about who is taxed and who gets revenue and exactly how it works. But I think the end of the public-private should we should be thinking about that. So you are you are you sort of describing sort of the nationalisation basically of private companies in that sense? So um, because my concern with that would be is potentially it would stifle innovation if 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 there's no incentive for someone to come up with the new Facebook or the new Google or whatever else right. might be down the line because that might be nationalised. Is that isn't that problematic? 
one, I, I do not mean to suggest that, but two, um, if, if you don't mind, I think that that's not a good reading of history. Um, I believe the name is Maria Mazzucati, but there are, there are one of several books that are very good. And it's actually not hard to see if you're close to the US government, that innovation happens in the United States. Innovation has often started with the deep funding by the US government, the internet, as a public, right, came from the government. GPS and all of its, right, the other things that, that flow from the internet came from the government. I, you know, I regret to say that nylons, which may be on their way out now also, you know, came from the government's uh, research into plastics and so forth. But innovation is not solely something that comes from the private sector. It comes from a particular culture um, of, and it comes from, you know, deep investment. Uh, but more often than not, it comes from, uh, interactions between the government and private sector. Uh, I'm also reading a terrific book right now about Bell Atlantic and innovation in the United States before and then after World War II. That is a story of engagement um, at a very optimal level between the government and the private sector. So I would not say that government stifles innovation in some sort of blanket way. But two, the thing that I wanted to say about nationalization is that it's sort of a silly claim that people make right now. To say that the government, as some do, should nationalize Google is ridiculous. We don't, there's nobody in government that has the expertise at this point, or there are a few people, right, to manage it. So what are you left with? You're left with exactly the same situation in which something looks like it has become a public entity, but it really, it, it remains very much the same. So I think it's kind of a, a red herring nationalization of, of some kinds of companies. So talking of uh, innovation in that case, I mean, we've obviously been through the most incredible uh, last almost two years now with uh, the pandemic. Um, do you think that COVID will fast forward innovation as a consequence of all the experience, shared experience we've been through? Scientific collaboration, absolutely. Um, and innovation in the sense of this technical application of science, which is what the Bell Atlantic story is about, turning science into practical application quickly, effectively. Yes, I think that, I know that, we know that. The mechanisms for scientific collaboration were always there um, across borders. Uh, they've been enabled in certain ways that are extremely helpful right now. And I think this will mean a lesson learned for a long time. We have myriad threats facing us as humanity at the moment, climate, COVID, political instability, national security. What's the biggest threat do you think that we face as a species? I hate this question. I hate this question because- I'm I sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I thought it was a good question. <laughs> it's a great question. It's a question that requires, you know, what, what is the biggest threat? You know, the biggest threat, of course, is is our failure. The biggest threat is our is is failure to come to political and societal decision making that helps us make some chart some path through these crises. There are probably several. Some are being foreclosed as we speak, right? People no longer talk about mitigating climate change, right? The, the language of adaptation is now on the rise. So certain choices become foreclosed, but nevertheless, right? We have imagination These, and questions that are around political instability 
that's a more variable question. That's not a yes or no. So our big, our biggest failure will lie in, in the failure of political systems to organize themselves, of governments and, and leaders, right? To, to get their act together um, and, and figure out how to speak with each other. Um, and that is a cultural question. That is a question of whether um, in a small grassroots way, there can be a burgeoning of individuals in a generation that say, hey, wait, this problem is more important than my career, our egos. And it's a systemic issue um, that asks process, asks for, for process and system design that optimizes people's ability to get information from each other, to communicate with each other, and to make decisions in a rapid way so that they can, at the very least, kind of get to the next stopping point, make a, a reasonable number of tactical and operational decisions about weather crises in the next five years so that other decisions and processes and innovations can be experimented with and installed. So I think um, we are our own biggest threat. The politicians might be our biggest threat, frankly. Um... So as a, as a professor, how important is it to you that we educate the next generation about and think things through in a futurism perspective? It couldn't be more important. I mean, I can't overstate it. I have seen it in my students. I have, I have a couple of students who have become futurists. That's not necessary. You don't have to take this job. In fact, I'd almost rather you went into any of the other professions you might be interested in and take this thinking with you. But students in college and in graduate school in particular, and in, well, let me step back because there are people who educate at other levels and it's important all the way through. But young people are in an incredible position with their facile minds and their, you know, potentially open imaginations and their capacity to become critical thinkers. They are in a great position. They're in a great position to help forestall these crises that you've listed. It is, it is really a shame that, that we don't take education and innovation in education itself as seriously as we do um, arenas of particular kinds of technological innovation. And I am not talking about the delivery of education on platforms or its personalization. All of that's fine. All of the modalities in classrooms, through screens, on monitors, you know, while tracking eyeballs, while, you know, playing in a play yard, they're all good. But I, I don't mean the modality of its delivery. I mean, taking education and the fostering of, of young minds really, really seriously. I mean, here at uh, Metaverse, we, uh, certainly myself personally, I try and focus on the positive stuff. So it's, it's about looking forward to the future and seeing all the great things we can create, uh, the great things we can change. So as a futurist, you know, what's your positive spin on where we're going to be in about 10 years time? Yeah, I don't, I am like you. I mean, I'm an optimist. I, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that people are always thinking that the sky is falling. It's not actually clear that this is the worst time in history. There are lots of times that make it great. So the thing that I think is most interesting about now is structural institutional change. We're there's the there's one arena is capitalism and and production and perhaps supply chains. Isn't it interesting that that um, workers, that people who have just suffered kind of the 
the wages handed to them are really waking up right now and, and acting in all kinds of innovative ways, some of which harken back to, to unions and some of which are really novel ways individually of saying, you know what, I'm gonna do my life a different way. So the remaking of what it means to work and how we are supported is to me a profound opportunity um, to shift finally, as we should have been probably since the beginning of the century, from an industrial model, which right is irrelevant, to one in which we figure out anew how people can work, be fed, and, and gain autonomy. I mean, that's right, that's what each person needs. Um, how and and live up to their ex, their their you know their best selves, um, whatever that is. That's one. The other is that I think this is a great era for the individual um, in, in all kinds of contexts, whether you are you know, come to into the world in a profoundly privileged way um, or, or basically an underprivileged way. Um, the fact is that more and more people have information and have the tools of access to other people available to them. And people have been able to do profoundly interesting, sometimes disruptive, sometimes dangerous things. But, but to me, that all looks like opportunity. The reason that Twitter in the last few years sounds so horrible, I, I believe, you know, sounds terrible, sounds like a, every word I arrive at is basically a swear word, but sounds like, you know, a really big mess is because everybody hasn't ever been in the room before. We've never had such a democratic participation in discourse. And now it turns out that there are a lot of issues and a lot of histories that have been um, not been aired. So a vision for the world at a very high level is the remaking of the structures of distribution so that more people have access to education and what, what constitutes fulfillment um, for them with their basic needs met. It is one in which the basics of technological connection are available to everyone. It is also one in which this burgeoning recognition that we shouldn't fill all gaps with technology also comes to the fore. So I have been thinking lately that maybe one emerging human right might be access to human contact, right? Shouldn't we all be sort of touched or see a human employer or employee, right? I interface with a lot of machines. I get my groceries from one. I check out my own groceries. I check myself in at my own doctor and so forth. So, um, so we will find a balance. We will find a balance and we'll do it in pockets and slowly that will will spread and we'll find a new equilibrium um, with the new with the new tools that we have. Well, I'm, I'm glad at least you're positive about the future because I certainly am. It's, uh, it's, it's good to share that with you. Tell me a bit about your future, Amy. What's the future hold for you? Well, as you heard early in the program, uh, I am an older uh, adoptive parent right now. So I am in that generation of people, newborn. So I'm thinking a lot about um, about the future in a new way and actually starting to see it in, in, from new eyes. Other than that, I've also moved to a new, a new old city for me, New York City in the last, in the last year. Um, and that city is fantastically coming out of COVID. Um, so I'm looking at a small scale and I'm very excited at seeing in this, in this global city, um, the opportunity for some of those technological innovations shifts in governance, opportunities for people to connect unfold here. And I'm looking for ways to participate in them. 
um, and to keep trying to make some impact in the areas where I often work, which are um, national security and defense foresight and um, this growing world of thinking about governance and, and how society orders itself. Well, Amy, I wish you all the best, particularly on your parenting uh, journey that you're on right now. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to Metaverse with me, Francis Hellier. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Amy Zalman, for a fantastic conversation. Tweet us at MetaversePod with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, metaverse.fm. Metaverse.